0: Hello there. Yes, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Number But the Brave podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean. Flynn, I know what we were doing 20 years ago tonight.
1: <laughs> I remember as well. It was a lot warmer, and uh, we were people could gather at a concert, and that concert was a great one by Bruce and the Eastery Band in Hartford.
0: Yes, we don't want to jump ahead too much. Of course, we're going to be talking the reunion tour year 2000 in this episode, but 20 years ago today we were in Hartford together and it was, I feel, one of the top three concerts that I've seen in the reunion era.
1: Well, it's probably up there for me as well. I haven't really done a, a top five list, but on the reunion tour, that will be uh, at least number one or number two.
0: Yeah, let's jump ahead to present day where Bruce has done another guest DJ, his third on E Street Radio. Any thoughts on that?
1: I loved it. What can I say? Um, he's getting better with every every show, becoming more and more comfortable. He's making it more. I guess like almost like a theme hour. Well, maybe not theme like every song goes together, but certainly he likes talking about stuff to to set up each song. And you know, it's just fun to hear him play what's what songs he's listening to. I mean, I listen to way too much of him, I'm sure. But uh, so it's good to see what he's listening to, and it's definitely a diverse group of songs. That's for sure.
0: Oh, yeah, really a diverse group of songs. You have some of his influences in there, like Fogarty and Dylan and the Stones, too, with their new living in a ghost town. You got Tammy Wynette. That was an interesting (laughs) one.
1: That Public Enemy.
0: Cool. This is real diversity we're talking about. The Pet Shop Boys covering his song, Last to Die. And I, and I thought he was very energized and engaged in what he was saying. He got a little bit more political in this one. He talked about how the country was so ill prepared for the pandemic. And I just thought it flowed really nicely. And, and I did enjoy listening to it.
1: Um, as did I. I got, I got to hear some stuff I've, I actually never heard before. That rank and file song was pretty cool. And uh, I really like the Pet Shop Boys cover of "Last to Die," and he uh, he got a little political there. And uh, I'm kind of surprised it took him this long. And and certainly to kind of segue us into our our main topic for the night, it was great to hear "Big Sky Country." I had uh I had some by Chris Wheatley. I had some major flashbacks to leaving various arenas in 2000.
0: Oh yeah, you're totally correct. This provides us with a perfect segue to tonight's topic, which of course is the reunion tour year 2000. And before we get into the specific shows that were played, which started, the leg opened on February 28, 2000 after Max was finished with sweeps. I think we should discuss the voice issue as people refer to it. We didn't get to this in the last episode. It was a lengthy episode and we couldn't cover everything. But as we're both aware there has been over the years much criticism by certain fans of Bruce's voice on this tour. And I just wanted to get your take on that before we go into the specific shows.
1: It didn't bother me then. And it doesn't bother, it still doesn't bother me, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, it was a little bit, it was more evident in some songs than others. I mean, certainly Thunder Road is one of the bigger culprits in there, but it didn't bother me.
0: Well, you know, it didn't bother me that much either. I agree. Thunder Road was never. I think, fully realized on the reunion tour. He did not sing it great. I don't, that's not being overly critical. I think that's widely believed by a lot of fans, and I think it's accurate. Some of the other songs, he was doing countrified versions of certain songs, and that sort of vocal style fit well with those songs. And I think that perhaps the voice wasn't fully back to rock and roll coming off the Joe tour, but... I never really noticed it that much on any song other than Thunder Road, and I think there's been some overreaction to it over the years. And we now have three archives from this tour, and certainly I-, I find them to be fantastic listens. Yeah, I
1: I hear nothing wrong with them now, that's for sure. I didn't hear anything wrong with them then. Some of it maybe we can chalk it up to we were just so excited to see Bruce again that Bruce with the band again that some of the more nuances in his in a singing style or in a, or in a playing or any kind of other little little thing that we would jump all over now uh, we were we just overlooked that. but I listened to I mean the entire tour on through the magic of bootlegging so and I never skipped over Thunder Row
0: just because I didn't like his voice and I think his voice did sound even though he was singing with what some people refer to, and I'm using air quotes now, the twang. I do think his voice was powerful on that tour, and it sounded strong. He just, and on certain songs, he put a little different vocal twist on it. I'm guessing it was intentional. Don't you think that was intentional?
1: I mean, I'm sure it was. Uh, He had kind of come up with a bit of a Southern accent starting around the Tunnel ton of love tour. And I think it just kind of stuck with it for a while, stuck with him for a while. And maybe he should have tossed more of it out for this tour. But the only song I really hear it on is Thunder Road. And even yeah. that one, I'm just like, eh, forget well, it. I, you know, I, I, I still love it and I'm still going to listen to it.
0: Well, I think there also, he did certain things on Thunder Road on this tour, which he didn't really let the crowd sing, the crowd sing along lines that had been in place for at that point, really (laughs) decades. So, and it did sort of throw off the pacing because it seemed like he was intentionally trying to keep the crowd from singing along. I don't know if that's an accurate read. What did you think about that?
1: Oh, that's that's a good point. Cause he really didn't just say, here, you sing it. Right. He, he, He kept going. He sang it a little bit off, off the usual cadence. It wasn't a problem for me.
0: Okay, I just wanted to get your take on it. This is such a common topic of conversation, and I know a lot of fans care about it, so I felt we should address it. And look, I can't deny that there was some Joe Twang that was present on certain songs on that tour, with Thunder Road being the biggest offender. I just think it's a matter of how sensitive you were to it.
1: Well, there was certainly no Twang in Youngstown, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, that, and that's one of the things that it clearly was something he was doing intentionally because it wasn't in every song. And, you know, look, he's made an artistic choice. Some people can agree with it. Some people may not agree with it. But overall, obviously, as we said the last time, I mean, you and I think very, very highly of this tour. So it didn't really have a huge impact for me. And it certainly had, I would say, almost no impact at the time.
1: I th- as I said, I think people were very excited just, just to see Bruce and the band back, that little things like that were, were overlooked at the time and the excitement of, of hearing Thunder Road live for the first time in X number of years.
0: With that, let's head into the tour in the year 2000. The first show, as I said a little while ago, was at the Bryce Jordan Center on the campus of Penn State University. I believe you were at that show, right? I was indeed.
1: I was indeed. We went up uh, actually a, a day or so before in hopes that Bruce would actually get there a day or so earlier as well and hear him hear them sound check. And that's exactly what happened. And uh, after that sound check, he did stop to sign autographs. And some friends and I requested Lions Den because of the Nittany Lions and Mount Nittany there. And he said, That's an excellent thematic suggestion. And he played it. He, he, he hadn't, opened with it. It was obviously he hadn't thought of it because uh, he didn't rehearse it the, the night before or that night. The first night, so he opened with it, and uh, that was fun. That was a lot of fun.
0: Now, I got a question for you because I actually was looking at Bruce Bass in preparation for this uh, today, and did you hear the whole check? I heard most of it, yes. Bruce Bass says that they did three songs by the Trogs during That's the true. middle of the check.
1: That's true. I,
0: I, now, uh, what was up with that? And it would have been great. I love Love Is All Around. That would be great if the band covered that um as to the why i i don't know i really
1: don't know you know maybe they were just getting back together they were playing some stuff just to just to get back in the groove playing some stuff that from their from their youth that they really enjoyed and
0: you know, maybe there it, was, wasn't was anything more to it than that. Well, Bruce Bay speculates that perhaps they were, were preparing for a guest appearance that never happened. It does seem weird. I mean, we know the band fools around on songs that, from their past or whatever that they enjoy, but three songs from the same band, a band fairly, I don't want to say obscure, but the Trogs are not the Stones. <laughs> it just seems it I, I, that caught my eye today. So I wanted to hear if you had heard that. Yeah. And what we had heard that, and I don't. I don't. Even, they may not have been complete
1: versions of them either. They might have just been like a, a couple of verses in the chorus. Okay, but that I mean, may. if we can find a recording of that sound check, we can go back and listen.
0: Oh, is there is there no IEM recording of that sound check? I didn't say that. Oh, Okay, well, <laughs> I may need to hear that anyway. <laughs> Yes, go I mean, on. I would like to hear the E Street Band doing "Love Is All Around." All but right. what'd you think? What'd you think of the show itself?
1: Uh, Lionsden was was fun. It was it was yeah, a lot of fun. It really it was a you know local favorite, as they as they would say. But um, from there on, it was pretty much the exact same show we had seen last uh, last November.
0: Well, and you would expect that because, first of all, we know when they come off a break, they generally do the show that they w- had just been doing. And also, I think in this case, the, the set was very successful in 1999, and I'm sure he knew that.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, he really did come up with a good structure. As we said, he stuck with it all of 99, and he certainly was going to stick with it in 2000. And, but, uh, but yeah, he stuck with this one, and it worked well, I mean, and they were solid.
0: After Penn State, they did a series of shows in Florida. You and I didn't see any of those shows. Now, at this point, they were settled into pretty much the routine of the Model A set when they were playing Single Night's. There weren't too many tour premieres. In fact, I think it took six shows for there to be any tour premiere on this leg, but the band was playing at an incredibly high level. And as we said, the set was working beautifully, so completely understandable in these mainly one-show cities that he stuck to that set.
1: My biggest takeaway from those first early shows in March was that he had gotten away from a lot of the tracks material, even in November. Yeah. And but but here as we go go into 2000 and in February and March, certainly with Penn State, you had Lions Den. You went down to Florida and he had Don't Look Back in there. Orlando, had My Love not Let You Down, where the Bands Are. So he was he seemed to be, be bringing a lot some of that track stuff back in. Uh and and also he was starting to sound check stuff like Brilliant Disguise and tougher than the rest, even Lucky Town and, and Human Touch. So he was already, even an early master, he was already starting to build for the rest of the leg.
0: Right, and he knew where they were heading, which was 10 shows in New York. Well, yeah, yes. And and, and he, much like he when he did the 15 nights at the Meadowlands, I'm sure he was thinking, well, in advance, what am I going to do during these 10 nights? Now, of course, that was a little thrown off by some controversy, but we're not going to jump ahead in the story. We'll get to that in time.
1: Well, I definitely see your point, but at the same time, I think it's a little unfair to call uh, March, April, and May warm-ups for the garden. um, No,
0: that's not not what I was saying, but I mean, (laughs) we know know he sometimes previews material in places when he knows he wants to play in a few shows down the line, and I think he was just working in his mind, you know, what material was going to be coming up and not coming up. I don't think that these were warm-up shows. In fact, as you and I are going to discuss uh, a theme of tonight's show is that the band was playing at this point at a, at an incredibly high level, one of the highest levels that you and I have ever been lucky to see them in a sustained period. Now, I'm not comparing it to the River tour or the Darkness tour, but for the past 20 years or so, the this was a period where they played about as high a level as we've seen them.
1: And I, I look at some of that stuff that he was sound checking and even playing uh like Brilliant Disguise, Tougher, Lucky Town, Human Touch, as I mentioned. I would argue that he was trying to get everybody comfortable with that stuff because they were playing at such a high level and he wanted to he wanted to mix things up a little bit even before they got to got to New York. Now which, they and and he did that. And he did that. It wasn't like we didn't have any tour debuts until, you know, June twelfth. whereas – you know Lucky Town ended up showing up finally in April Human Touch also in April
0: Oh wait Lucky so, Town wasn't a tour debut
1: It wasn't a tour debut but it was um he pretty much dropped it by the time April ended in in April 99 so right. he was trying to bring that one back uh, Human Touch it was kind of surprising that was never done in 99 but after months or weeks of sound checking it it, it made its debut finally and it was, a, it was a good one.
0: The first major tour debut that occurred in the 2000 leg appropriately was in Little Rock, Arkansas, which, if I recall, actually was one of the worst attended Springsteen shows <laughs> in the history of his touring. And which is ironic because it, on the reunion tour, they sold tickets pretty much everywhere else in, in lightning fast manner but uh in arkansas they had some problems selling tickets he can he went down there anyway and played the show and it, he did do for the first time since march 1974 mary queen of arkansas of course appropriate to the location
1: yes it was uh between that one and then a couple a few nights later when he played memphis he did follow that dream so he had kind of even back then he was doing like a local flavor and between between those two and he added lines then. It's almost like he was like the excellent thematic suggestion tour, playing stuff that was very appropriate for, for, for the city that he was visiting.
0: Yeah, and you know how much I love Follow That Dream.
1: Yes, I do. And unfortunately, that was the only time it was done on that tour. Yeah. Which is kind of always a lost opportunity there, but he had a lot of other songs to play.
0: Now, there wasn't another tour debut until they got the Portland a few shows later. And I actually was at that show because I went up to the Upper Northwest for the Portland at the coma pairing. And that the Portland show, which was a very good show, they did debut the E Street Band version of Dead Man Walking, played for Oregon's Life for a Life campaign.
1: Yeah, and that was pretty significant. I, in my book, anyway, I think that that really started a a run of maybe not tour debuts, but certainly reaching deeper and in, in, into the into the playbook than than he had been doing before.
0: Well, I thought it was significant because of the political angle, and of course, he couldn't have known this on April the third because the political controversy he would wind up being in a month later hadn't happened yet, but it did sort of put a sheen on the entire final couple of months of the tour that it did become much more of a political statement than he'd been making in 1999.
1: That's true. I mean, he did bring Dead Man Walking back in, uh, in Raleigh and Charlotte later in the month of April. So it was a statement that he was he was willing to make, and he was willing to make it repeatedly. And obviously, he also did it at the Garden one night. So he was not shying away from that at all.
0: No. And Tacoma was a pretty standard show. That place is enormous, the Tacoma Dome. For me, it was the last show for about a month. Now, we did hear some of the sound checks those nights, and he was doing stuff like you're indicating, Human Touch, Loose Ends, both of which I was dying to hear. I still hadn't heard Loose Ends at that point. He soundchecked at Tacoma, Candy's Room, which I never heard at the time. So there was a lot of stuff in soundchecks that I was hoping would be in the show, but it, it didn't happen uh, on those dates.
1: No, it wasn't. But uh, he went on to the next stop, which was he did a, I consider these a twofer, a St. Louis, Kansas City twofer, just like he did in 2008. Uh, and, but it was in St. Louis that he sound checked further on up the road for the first time. And that was kind of a major deal at the time. He was sound checking a new song. It was the first one. That we had known of, and since uh, he was, since he debuted "Land of Open Dreams" uh, over a year earlier.
0: Yeah, and it was really exciting when that news made the rounds that they were working on a new song, because I think it provided everyone with a lot of hope uh, moving forward.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and also going back to those two so- those two shows in St. Louis and Kansas City, and they were there were some cool set list nuggets in there as well. You had "Rendezvous," "She's the One," "Brought disguise in St. Louis, in Kansas City. You had to take them as they come. Along with downbound training, Candy's room to in the post Tenth Avenue slot. So, things were really beginning to open up, even even at that point.
0: Yeah, as April continued, they continued to work and stuff like that. And the one that, of course, was most interesting to me was in Houston, where they did better days for the first time. But I know also you were at the Nashville show, right?
1: I was. I was. We flew down. Uh, flew down the day of the show. We we had a excellent jail base. We were all excited for a repeat of or a an Easter equivalent of what happened in ninety six when he when he really broke broke out the set list at that at the Ryman Auditorium on the Joe tour, but it was as standard as standard can be. It was a great show or it was as good a show as it could be for a standard set list.
0: Well it sounds like you might have been guilty of a little too much high expectations there, Flynn. Yeah, well it happens. It happens and it then then
1: three nights later or through or three days later in Louisville he pulls out Back in your arms and don't look back. So you know, missed a by a show, and then in Houston, as you said, better days.
0: And then he went to the Carolinas. Now you were at those shows too, right?
1: I was, and they they are actually fantastic, especially the first night in Charlotte. the The crowd was into it. He was into it. They were really one plus one equals three that night. I mean, starting with my love and the Rendezvous, Darlington County was was even at a high level. As I said, Dead Man Walking made a return in the Carolinas. And then both Spirit and Stand On It ended up in the, in the encores. And that was, it was a wild show. It doesn't, uh, you wouldn't think of Charlotte of getting as getting a, a wild one, but, but they got it this time.
0: Now, something else happened in Raleigh, which was going to lead to some big things. And there was an, another new song premiered in the soundcheck, and that was American Skin. Did, did you hear that?
1: I did. And it didn't sound anything like what we heard at the garden. Um, oh really? I didn't know that. Yeah. I just it sounded more country-esque. Country-esque at the time. There were only a few lines we could really make out. We actually ended up inside the arena for the sound check, if you can if you can believe it. We just saw it we saw an open door, we walked in and no one kicked us out. <laughs> and but we were so we heard it. It sounded interesting. We we kept trying to place it, trying to figure out is this that song? Is this this other song? But it was something we had never heard before. And it ended up becoming a big deal about six weeks later.
0: Yes. It, we're going to get to that in a moment. It was a very, very big deal from, yeah.
1: well, well, one more, one more comment about, about yeah. these two Carolina shows is that this is another situation of, you had a very loose Bruce in Charlotte and you can tell by, with stuff like spirit and stand on it and uh, Darlington County rendezvous. But, and then the next night in Raleigh, it was business, Bruce. Between the, you had Dead Man walking back, you had me across the river into Jungle Land. And then, of course, the highlight for me was Lucky Town. Yeah. So that was uh, two, that was a heck of a weekend.
0: Yeah. from the Carolinas, they went to Pittsburgh. One of the notable things about the first show in Pittsburgh is that Human Touch premiered. And that, I've always thought the E Street Band version of Human Touch is just out of this world. He, Took a while to debut it, but once they did, they really nailed it.
1: It was amazing. I, I, it's one of those songs where why had it, why wasn't he doing it from the get-go? But obviously he has some kind of some kind of issue with the '92 stuff. But when he finally pulled it out, the the crowd did react very positively, and it became more or less a regular over the last uh, month or so of the tour.
0: Yeah, I think the crowd did accept certainly Human Touch really, really well, better than some of the other 92 songs. Of course, it was a top 10 hit. Or was <laughs> it top 10 or top 15? Well, it was a hit.
1: Uh, I, I might it might have been top 15 on the on the top 40, but or on the, the pop top 40, but certainly top 10 on the adult contemporary
0: charts. A notable debut in the show after Pittsburgh, which was in Cincinnati, was Dancing in the Dark, of course not played as Dancing in the Dark, as you'd know it from Born in the USA, but full band, country version.
1: Yes, I I wasn't at that show, but uh, it was really exciting to hear a recording of it. It was done in the same style as as No Surrender, kind of a country swing version that we saw in, in Cleveland the previous year.
0: After Cincy, the tour moved on to Toronto. And to me, the second show
1: in Toronto is notable, not only because it was my birthday, but even though I didn't go. But he had been doing that meeting in the town tonight intro almost every show going back to the previous what October,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? And but the second night Toronto he didn't do it, and to me that that signaled that he was going to open up the the opening slot to just I feel like when he did the meeting in the town tonight he was limit, limiting himself to you know ties it bind my love or don't look back these kind of songs, the songs that start off as a total rocker once he dropped that intro I thought. Things were opening up, and they did.
0: Yes, they did open it up. And as they left Toronto, the next city up was Hartford, where a lot of people from the Northeast were going to converge. I think that's one of the reasons that made those two shows special. And I wasn't there the first night. You guys were there. What did you think of the first night?
1: I thought it was great. At that point, the the second night model that he had been, that he had been using a year earlier was now the first night. We got Don't Look Back, Rendezvous. Point Blank, and most importantly to me, Human Touch, and then that, that new version of of No Surrender. So he came he came with the rarities are ready to go, and he came out firing, too, those first four songs. I mean, they're all less than four minutes long, so it was a boom, boom, boom kind of thing.
0: Yeah, it sounded like a really good show. I know everyone, when I spoke to them after the show, was very high on it, and it got me psyched up to come up the next day and that was 20 years ago today where seriously where's the time gone <laughs> that's so, a very good question yeah 20 years ago today we found ourselves in Hartford now when i got up there as you know i don't like this hear the sound check info someone came running over to me and said oh we got to tell you what was in the sound check and i waved them off And fortunately they didn't tell me now there was some stuff in the sound check that wound up not getting played including one thing that's never been played with the east street band and that's leaving train
1: yeah it's um uh, the four songs uh, that were sound checked, at least according to to Bruce Base, uh, "Leap of Faith," "Leaving Train," "Lions Den," and "Roulette." He really made the made the best choice uh, uh, by uh, actually opening
0: opening the show with Roulette. Yeah, the lights went down that night. The band came out on stage, and Max launched into Roulette, and I just remember I felt ecstatic. And I think the rest of the crowd felt similarly. It was just like an explosion of energy in the building as roulette started. And it really set the tone for the evening.
1: Oh, absolutely. It did. If there's any song that, that announces to, to the crowd and even to the band that we're here tonight, we're here with authority. It's good to quote Eric Cartman. They, they announced their presence with authority. So, and that song did it. I mean, between the drums. And certainly the guitar solos, they were—they set the tone for, for w- what was going to be an amazing night.
0: Yeah, and that was the first performance of Roulette since July of 1988, incredibly. And I think a lot of fans were happy it returned, and it really did set the tone for the evening. And from there, they launched into Prove It All Night. And then Two Hearts came, as it normally did on the reunion tour. And the energy was really high, but then it was the next moment that I think really sort of kicked the show into a whole nother gear. And that was when Darlington County started. And suddenly it wasn't Darlington County we were seeing performed. It was the Rolling Stones honky tonk woman.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, the opening guitar riff to, to Darlington for a while there on the tour, it had a, already had a Rolling Stones type feel to it. And so to actually jump, jump all in and go ahead and go with actually play a part of the stone song, certainly, Yeah, that was one of the moments of the tour. I think it only lasted about, what, 90 seconds, not even?
0: Well, it was just so out of nowhere. I mean, of course, Darlington County was played regularly on the tour. It had been played probably, what, hundreds of times since the Born in the USA tour. And, of course, that had never happened before. And whatever similarity between the two songs there is, and people did over the years bring that up, but... He'd never launched into it. What made him do it on that night, it, we'll never know. But what happened was, as the recognition came over the crowd, there was just a roar of approval, and everything that happened from there felt Hayden that night. The, the version of Darlington County that followed was really, you know, and this is not a song that I'm normally like, oh, Darlington's being played, that's great. It was, it was such a fiery version of that song coming out of Honky Tonk Woman.
1: Well, yeah, once you had the crowd at that level, and I'm sure Bruce and Steve were certainly enjoying themselves by the time they actually launched into the uh, the lyrics of Darlington. Yeah, everything was uh, it was going the right direction. And I'll always remember the end of that song when I think some kid ha- had a sign that said the big man or the big man is back. And yeah, Bruce repeated that at the end of the song. And, you know, I, I can't listen to that song and did not listen to that to that little that little piece with a smile on my face.
0: Yeah, it was just, you know, there's those special moments that you're, you as you were just indicating, very memorable. And really, if you look at this set list, I mean, there were some nice selections in there, but this was not a show that was primarily about set list, but it was also about performance. The performance of the band on May 8, 2000 was absolutely stellar, a level above pretty much every other reunion tour show that I saw, there was just something going on in that building that night. Yes, there was.
1: And it's, it's Bruce's magic trick. One and one equals three. And there's really, it's, it's hard to say, well, he played this, he played this solo this way, or he sang this song a certain way. You really can't put your, put your finger on it, but there was something there that if you're in the building, you knew it was happening.
0: Well, I think one of the things is, of course, Hartford is between Boston and New York, and you get at New Jersey, and you get a lot of fans from those places. It was a weeknight, and people had come up. A lot of them were going to spend much of the night driving home to go to work the next day. It was a crowd that really wanted to be there, and Bruce really rose to the occasion that night, as did the entire band. and And, and you think even like the five pack, you know, songs that were played every night on the tour. When you listen to that recording, and I know it's a recording you put together. You can hear it even in those songs. There, there was a little extra kick that night.
1: Right, there was an extra kick, and that's it's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint it. Like as I said, it's hard to say right there. That's the moment. But it was just throughout the show. And well, I th-
0: in this case, we can really pinpoint the moment because I do think the honky tonk woman really did kick drive the show. Now, Bruce seemed quite pleased with himself. I think he already knew it was a show that was rolling, and that may be ultimately why he did that little bit of surprise there
1: i don't know what he was thinking but that was that definitely is a good explanation now going back to the geographic aspect of this show i think we should also kind of point out that this was the only real northeast show of the tour of of 2000 up to this point no yeah i think so i think you're right and these were the only two northeast shows until those the 10 nights at the garden about a month five weeks later People who were, who had some pent up
0: Bruce need
1: they they came and they were going to get it.
0: And it was a very nice set list. The wild card slot after 10th Avenue was brilliant disguise, and that was followed by a great version of Because Tonight. Mm-hmm. I also remember the Racing in the Street with the was memorable that night.
1: Oh, That was an amazing Racing in the Street. Just I mean, just sublime.
0: So as, okay. you, as you
1: said, the way the coda went on and it's it's I mean, they nailed it. It's one of those things where. That was it.
0: And the crowd knew it. it. You know, it's one of those interesting things. You know, how does a crowd know these things? The crowd knew that night that that show was special. I mean, the reaction heading into the encores, well, in light of day included Boom Boom, which also caused an explosion in the building. But the the encores had you know, opened with spirit in the night. and And I remember it was just... There was an electricity to that version of Spirit, not to say that Spirit was performed poorly on other nights on this tour, because, of course, it wasn't. But there was an electricity to that one performance of the song that I really remember standing out from that night.
1: Right. It's funny if you look back at it now and see this this encore on paper, it's really like, well, that was pretty that was pretty standard, especially with I mean, Spirit has he's played it a lot since, let's be honest. But at that point, it was still pretty much a rarity. It was a call out to the to the to the old fans, as he would say. And he got into it. with the with, did he do? The the kicks that night?
0: I don't remember, to be totally honest.
1: OK, because you know, he- and
0: there's not a lot of video from this show because I went back and checked today and I actually tweeted out one of the few videos I could find the Atlantic City from the NBTB podcast account. And I didn't really see like I couldn't even find the Honky Tonk Woman. I thought at one point it was there, but I-, I couldn't find it today.
1: Um it's out there. It's there's definitely a full, full-length show video of it. Maybe it's just not on YouTube anymore. They they have every so often got gotten a little ants in their pants and decided to pull all those kind of fun videos down. Yeah. But well going back to spirit, I remember in in Charlotte when he did a couple weeks earlier I remember watching him stretch out his, uh, pulling his, his knees to his chest to kind of stretch out the back muscles a little bit before he did the kicks. And I, I, I would be surprised if he didn't do the same thing in Harvard.
0: I, I think he did now that you're talking about it. I do seem to recall that the other thing about the encores, the version of Ramrod. Now, a lot of them were long at this point, but the building was so on fire. It seemed like it went on forever. <laughs>
1: Well, that's that's always a hallmark of the best ramrods was when that is when it really just keeps seems to keep the party groove going and going and going and and we don't want it to stop. We want the show to keep going.
0: Yeah, that was a show that I could have if it had gone on for another couple hours, that would have been great. (laughs) Yes, it would have. Yes, it
1: would have. now now a couple more interesting things that I I would like to point out about this about the set list anyway
0: Mm -hmm.
1: is that he did roulette at the show, but he didn't do it again until two thousand three.
0: And was that, was, it, the next, was the next performance at Shea?
1: It was, ah, it was, and so he worked it up for this one show, and then it never appeared again. Which, which, it, so that kind of makes it kind of special, and just in that respect. And then, of course, the honky tonk women—you, you thought, you would think that since it went over so well at this one, that he would bring it back at some point. You know, I mean. Let's be honest, he takes things that can be special for one moment and then kind of makes them not special. Not that I'm looking at you, New York City, serenade or anything. But he, he didn't do that again until 2012.
0: There was something very special in that building, I think, going on. And if he read that, he may not have wanted to use it in another circumstance that he didn't feel similarly about. So that, that would be my opinion on that.
1: OK, well, I, I just find it very interesting that even though it got such a, an incredibly warm reaction, I mean, enthusiastic reception is still something that he didn't do again for 12 years.
0: You know, looking at the set list, which I have in front of me, I would say I saw at least two or three, four, maybe five shows that I would, if I just looked at on paper, had a better set list on a reunion tour, I think, than this one. But I mean, hands down, it's the show I consider to be the best that I saw on the reunion tour. Do you, you agree that it was the best show you saw on the reunion tour? I
1: believe I believe so. And I, that's pretty kind of remarkable
0: hard. because you were at 924 also.
1: I was. I was. And, and and at 925 and at nine of the 10 garden shows. And this one, there was that extra edge. And as you said, even the songs that had been done every night were just a little bit better.
0: Yeah, and I think from the people who were there, it's pretty universal in the regard for this show.
1: Yeah, there are some people who still claim that's the or, or feel that's the best show they've ever seen in the reunion era, and I guess I guess you're probably one of them. So, well, it's um, one of the best.
0: I, I you one know it's 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 right up there. Obviously, St. Louis, the River Show. I think I mentioned that earlier.
1: Yes, um, I only I didn't see either one of those, but this one certainly. Yeah, at the, when it comes to a short list for the best things I've seen over the last 20 years, this this is <laughs> one of the first things on that list.
0: Yeah, they did take a two-week break after Hartford, and they headed west, which was fortuitous for me. Uh, so wound up that I saw four straight shows in three cities over two weeks, because then Anaheim was up next. I remember Anaheim, really, the first show was very solid. It reinforced to me that they were playing at such a high level at this point. I think in general... Clearly starting even before May, but really with Hartford to the end of the tour, the playing every night was just off the charts great.
1: Well, I would certainly argue that it goes back to way back into April when you kind of start when you start seeing the 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 arc, the intensity, the intensity arc certainly start to rise in places like like Louisville and certainly Charlotte and Raleigh and and then the two nights in Pittsburgh. So it wasn't like they turned on a switch. It it was definitely a a fader going on at that point.
0: Now, the second night in Anaheim was a really good show. It reinforced to me because it's one of those unsung nights. Nobody talks about the second night in Anaheim. And I definitely saw shows on the Reunion tour, I regard as better. But it was a really, really fun night. And they deb- debuted the Roll of the Dice, which was obviously getting ready for Vegas. And then in the encores, after Land of Hope and Dreams ended, the portion of the show where he would call for a response from the crowd to see if he could egg them on, the fake, you know, are we going to play another one? <laughs> yes. Instead of launching into Ramrod, out of nowhere, he launched into Van Morrison's Gloria.
1: Yes, and that looked like, that's, that's, a, that's, an, that's an eyebrow razor right there. And I have to imagine that the energy in the crowd or in the building just just exploded because that is you know that's a very cool cover
0: yes um, it was
1: you know it kind of it harkens back to their best bar band in the land kind of kind of talk every member of that band could, could play it in their sleep and to make it have it appear on the encores and that point of the show place must have been going nuts
0: and i think it was pretty impromptu and that led into ramrod there were for especially for a show in a place like anaheim there were quite a number of Good setlist additions that night. Take them as they come. The roll of the dice, which I already mentioned. The No Surrender country version. Stand on it in the encore. So he he really on that night in Anaheim, he he did really give. If there were a lot of diehard fans there, and I think there were, he he gave them a treat that night.
1: Well, it certainly looks like it, and I, I have listened to the recording of it, and and yeah, they were they were playing really well. And but one other thing I want to ask or point out, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whatever you want to you want to put it. Isn't Anaheim is basically a suburb of LA, right?
0: Well, I mean, to put it in perspective, if I recall properly, the second night of, of Anaheim, which I believe was on a Monday night, it took me, I think, two hours and 20 minutes to get there.
1: Okay, but it's the same market as as it, LA. It's right? an ex-
0: I mean Orange County is an extended part of the LA market. I don't think especially on a weeknight that's why I think you get the diehards there. We're casual fans driving down in, in afternoon traffic to get to the pond. That I'm not so sure about. The point mm-hmm.
1: that I'm trying to make anyway is that this is one of the few the few places that got a re- got to return visit the, the next year. At least up in up until the big the big garden stand, no?
0: Yeah, I don't know if the, you know. I, we'd have to get Bruce again to, on to figure out if he considers Anaheim and LA to be different markets. It's certainly an extension of the same market. Was it nights five and six to Staples? I I never really thought of that, but I I guess it could be considered like that.
1: Well, certainly the first night set list is similar to the first night Harford, especially with uh, similarities of "Don't Look Back" and "Human Touch." So it kind of it, he was already doing the second night set list in the first night in Anaheim as well.
0: As we said, things had really picked up by this portion of the tour, and I think that was going to continue in the next show, which we we all found it was like a Springsteen convention <laughs> at the MGM Grand Garden Arena in Vegas. I don't know how many hundreds of people we knew in Vegas that weekend, well, but we knew a lot of them. <laughs> that was one of the great weekends that I've ever spent. And uh, besides Bruce, besides all our friends being there as it happened, uh, our buddy, our mutual buddy, Roger and I had a very good run at the craps table on the night before the show.
1: Oh, okay. Well, I don't, I don't play the table. So I was more excited about the show Bruce played, but uh, I'll let you gambling people take care of that.
0: Yes. It was a big night before. I'm just going to leave it like that.
1: All right. Well, then it was a big night, the night of the show too. I mean,
0: it really was.
1: He was. We knew there was going to be something thematic going on, but yeah. we weren't that surprised when he opened with Viva Las Vegas. Now, when he closed the show with Viva Las Vegas, that was a surprise. Yes. And I think you have to credit the crowd's response at the time to, to that second performance of it. So again, the energy in the building was pretty damn high.
0: Oh, yeah. It, well, like I said, it was like a Springsteen convention. I think the only other time we've really ever experienced that was at Mohegan Sun in 2014 another gambling mecca even though bruce did return to vegas once more on the rising tour it was nothing like what took place in the reunion tour of course the reunion tour was memorial day weekend they really did set that up perfectly
1: yeah, they they really did and it was it was fun flying out there i would never been to vegas as an adult so it was great to see it even though even if i didn't partake in any games but the show was definitely the highlight of the weekend for me
0: Yes. Well, it was the highlight of my weekend, but The Craps the night before was a close second.
1: Right. And this is one of the rare shows when he actually did three songs from from the 92 era. In addition to the usual yeah. fall behind, he he did uh, Roll the Dice and Lucky Town. Th- it was, b- b- both of which were great thematic suggestions.
0: Yes, he definitely went all in with the gambling theme at this show.
1: Yeah, too bad he didn't pull out Roulette again, but uh, we'll leave that uniqueness to Hartford.
0: Well, of course, that is a song about a nuclear meltdown, so I'm not sure. <laughs> Regardless of the title, although he does often play Who'll Stop the Rain When It's Raining. Right, right.
1: And certainly the, the was it one verse of Can't Have Falling In Love as the intro to Backstreet was, That was
0: very, very sweet.
1: Yeah, that was another one of those really cool moments that only happened then,
0: and it really, made, it really elevated the song, in my, in my opinion. You know, it's funny, because each of these shows that week... Between Anaheim and Vegas, they had such a different feel because of the way he treated the Vegas show. He did really go sort of more fun. You pointed this out earlier. Sometimes there's the serious Bruce where it's really intense, and then there's the more fun Bruce. Definitely Vegas was Bruce being his more fun mode, and that show really was a lot of fun.
1: Yes. Loose Bruce was in the house, and everybody everybody benefit, benefited from it.
0: And from Vegas... They headed into the home stretch of the tour. There was a show in Salt Lake City where, very notably, they debuted. It's hard to be a saint in the city.
1: Gee, I wonder why. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but
1: what's interesting about the about Salt Lake City? I mean, if you were there, I know it was a. It sounded like it was a tremendous show. You had "Don't Look Back," you had "Saint in the City," "Candy's Room." So it was a very strong show. But at the same time, what catches my eye is just the fact that he was sound checking the new songs further in American skin quite extensively in the sound check. Yes. And that that really was he was showing he was more serious about those songs actually possibly actually playing them in a the show. So it was uh you know one of those moments where at the time may not look that significant but you know with 20 years in, in the rearview mirror you see that it's about to is about to break big.
0: Well, what's interesting, and we're going to talk about Atlanta right now, I think what's interesting is the way it wound up working out, particularly with American Skin, which was the song that everyone focused on. It was premiered about 10 days before the New York stand started, so it allowed for it to get out into the public in a way I can't imagine Bruce expected.
1: I don't think anyone expected that. I I still don't know how exactly or the why it it exploded in the new york media the way it well, the way it did.
0: Well, okay, so let's first of all Atlanta the first night was as we were saying, for this point the, the general first night set like he played in Anaheim, he threw in dead man walking. Uh, Human touch was in there again on a first night. It opened with don't look back. So it was continuing the theme that he had set up over the past few weeks prior to that.
1: Well, let's not forget be true,
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, be true was in there also, and then right. but the the second night in Atlanta now unfortunately, neither you nor I were there.
1: no we were not one of the few shows that I really regret missing from that tour.
0: from what we've heard from other people who were there and just knowing in general what happened to set the scene, he came out and he opened with further on up the road, which was of course the world premiere of the song, setting the tone for the evening and then the show continued on, and after point blank they premiered American skin. Now, do, do you know, I've, I don't think I've ever discussed this with anyone. Was there a reaction in the crowd to the lyrical content of American skin in Atlanta?
1: I do not know. I do not know. I think it was, the sound of it was pretty, was pretty intense, obviously when we've all heard, heard the song since. Yes. So I think in some ways it, the, that feel of the song and it being something totally unfamiliar, must have given a lot of people pause certainly
0: before they even started singing the lyrics. Do you think that he premiered it in Atlanta in an effort to get ready for New York, much like he had, he had done roll the dice in Anaheim before Vegas. I would
1: have to, th- I would have to think so. I would have to have to think that he wanted to get a couple of these new songs at least played once in concert before debuting them or, or before they get their real coming out party at the garden. And I don't think he he imagined this reaction. I certainly, as I said, I
0: certainly didn't. But uh, well, um, the show itself really did have a very good set list that second night. He premiered two new <laughs> songs. He did loose ends. He did Jungle Land. He did This Hard Land in the encore. So this was a particularly solid show.
1: Oh uh, yes, it was. I think it was a it was a great show even before, or yeah,
0: even before you get to the reaction to the songs that right. occurred after the show. So that was June 4th, 2000. Now he's heading to New York and the stand in New York is going to open on June 12th. Yes. Something happens in between June 4th and June 12th. And that is a recording, a recording recording gets out and it it gets to the New York Post and the New York Post starts running uh, well, front pages basically about Bruce's new song. And suddenly he finds himself in a firestorm.
1: Yeah, the New York Post certainly they they heard it the, the way they wanted to hear it, that it was anti-cop and that Bruce was turning his back on on law enforcement officers everywhere. I mean, he had long been a supporter of a policeman. I mean, we in the last episode we talked about his participation in the Pat King benefit, which was for a fallen officer's family. So he probably was just was mystified as to how they got it got bl- blown
0: out of proportion. Well, I'm guessing he must have known the song was somewhat incendiary. I mean, based on what the song says... I don't think that he would have ever imagined. And of course, this is the year 2000. So again, we've got to put things into context. You know, if this happened today, of course, the minute the song is played, it would be on YouTube and maybe they would expect that reaction. But in 2000, it was prior to that. So the fact that a tape got out and I remember I didn't want to hear it until I got to the garden and I I was like, I'm not going to listen to it. I think I did break down because the controversy got so big and so many people were were calling me and asking me what did I think that Bruce was now anti-cop and I was like he's not anti-cop I said first of all exactly what you just said he's backed police for many years he did the Pat King benefit he's known to buy supplies for the local cops down and on the Jersey Shore it's just crazy that he's anti-cop and that's not what the song is saying but it it was just, I mean, it just grew and grew and grew. And then the Police Benevolent Association got involved. Patrick Lynch, who's, I believe, still the head of that organization. Yes,
1: and he is. He, he, talking- had
0: some, he had some choice words to say about Bruce.
1: Yeah, it's still amazing to me this, to see Pat Lynch on, on television now that I live in New York. And like, he was the guy who 20 years ago was saying all this crap. And it's it's amazing he's been in that
0: position for 20 years. And And the thing is, like, for me personally, like, I am, I've had family members who are NYPD. I am a huge supporter of the police. I would never back anything if I thought it was anti-cop. I think if you took a fair reading of what the man was saying in the song, it was not anti-cop. That was my opinion 20 years ago. It's still my opinion today. But it, we really need to set the stage for what happens during the garden, because this really changes the tone of everything.
1: It really does. It really made everything just a little bit more heightened. He was going to use playing for 10 nights. And up to that point, we were looking at it as going to be a celebration, a, a party, a 10 night party about this over this, this hugely successful and fun tour. But now we kind of take a major detour and it's now, a you know, a social consciousness party.
0: Well, not only well, not only is it about social consciousness, basically the eyes of the world are on Bruce. I mean, this is literally the entire media is covering what is going on now and the controversy over this song. And now, unfortunately, I was not at opening night. I didn't get there till June 22nd. And in fact, opening night, June 12th, is probably one of the shows, along with the two Philly shows, I regret missing the most in this era. The show opens. He's got this new song that... He, He wrote with Joe Groshecki called Code of Silence, which, if you read the lyrics to the song, really is a relationship song. But and you can pick this up because you were there. Code of Silence opens the show on June 12th and it's not being played as a relationship song.
1: No, it's not. It's uh, I guess it's about the thin blue wall and about how the police protect each other and stick up for each other, which which is what which is what they did. Um, but also at the same time, I know you said it's a song written with Joe Grashecki. We didn't know any of that. We, we, he came out, I was expecting further. He came out played something i had never heard before. And that's one of those holy crap moments because when that happens, that's pretty
0: freaking cool. Well, but here he was, it was more than just playing a new song that you hadn't heard before. It was a clear response to what was going on.
1: Well, I... I, I got to be honest. I really didn't hear the lyrics as as oh, okay. uh, as clear as I would have. But um, it wasn't until he got through. I guess it was 10th Avenue, or was it after Be True about where he actually said that's a song I wrote with Joe Gershaki. And then that was before you know a couple, couple songs later. It's American Skin time, and well, that was well, the moment
0: we were all waiting for. American Skin, and this is not an accident either. Follows Point Blank.
1: No, not an accident at all. I mean, he did, well, he did the same thing in Atlanta, as you, as you know.
0: Yeah. What was the response in the crowd when American Skin was played that first night?
1: I could say that there was some nervous energy, anticipation to see what people would say, what people would do. And there were some fingers. There were some the, the middle finger Jersey salute. Uh,
0: there were some boos.
1: But Bruce was not deterred, and he powered through the song. He had a statement to make at that point, and and he made it.
0: And he followed it with "Promised Land."
1: Yes, he did, and that's if there was any doubt about what exactly the song was, which was anti-tragedy and trying to help help everybody in this country achieve the goal of making it to the promised land. You know, all that doubt was removed.
0: Beyond being anti-tragedy, I always felt the song that w- the most important thing that people missed was. There were lines from the perspective of the cops and that they were fearing for their lives. He he didn't just go, I'm condemning police. He, he took the position in the song that these guys are out on the street. Is it a gun? Is it a knife? That this is a fear that they live with every minute. And it could be a gun and it could be a knife and they could be dead. So. He really humanized the position of the police in the midst of this song, which was a protest song about what had happened to Diallo. No question, but he he, he really did give both sides to the story, and he let you in on the mindset. I think it's a really really well written song, and of course we know just sometimes people don't really pay attention to the lyrics.
1: You think? <laughs> yeah. Well, th- the line that really that's always stood out to me in terms of being out of the cops out of the cops thinking was you're over his body in the vestibule praying for his life. Like they they, realized that they had, they had shot the wrong person and now they were hoping he wouldn't die. I mean, if it was anti-cop that he Bruce would not have portrayed them in that way at all.
0: Yeah. I, I, Look, we understand, as I just said, people do not necessarily listen to lyrics. And Bruce himself has said there's a lot of money in misinterpretation. Of course, he's referring <laughs> to Born in the USA when he says that. I'm sure he gets it, too. But that was just the case, I think, where things really spiraled out of control. We know what the New York tabloids are like. And <laughs> uh, it really, it, 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 as I said, it changed the tone of the stand, at least at the start.
1: Yes, and I, that's one of the few times when I think Bruce was actually, or that I could tell that Bruce was actually nervous on stage. Uh, he still had some nervous energy going up through, uh, just before int- he introduced Roll the Dice. He, he did seem like there was a false start to Roll the Dice, and he, it was his normal conf- confident self
0: throughout, throughout the night. Yeah, I, I, well, you could imagine, I, I don't know if he got any threats or anything, but one would think that was very possible based on what was yeah. going on.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I totally understand why he would be nervous, whether it was just about this is a statement he's going to make and he doesn't know the reception or whether it's something more more critical, like possible death threat.
0: So and then the second night now, I was as I said, I was not there till the 22nd. So the, there were four shows before the 22nd. Do, you were at all at well, which which were the you said you were at nine of the 10 shows, which was the show you skipped uh,
1: the next night, June 15th.
0: Okay, so neither of us were at June fifteenth, but we've heard that that was a good show. I mean, it certainly looks like
1: it. It's it's yeah. funny he doesn't have the uh, the t- the post tenth avenue wild card is not a rocker. He just he he goes straight into into no surrender the swing version before going into meeting into jungleland.
0: And you were there on the seventeenth, which was the night of the third show. Yes, it was. Yes, and it was. What do you remember about that one?
1: East Street Shuffle, most notably the fact that he first time he had played it, I guess, in 75. So that pretty much blew everyone away.
0: I mean, yeah, that but, was a continuation of what we were saying at the Lands.
1: Right. And but every every night when he played American Skin, whether it was the second night, the third night, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, there was always a little bit of a nervous anticipation about what was going to how people were going to react in the crowd. And certainly that was that was I mean, that night doesn't stand out for me in that way. But I, just a point that I that I, I feel like I need to make uh, four throughout the stand.
0: Yeah. And then the June 20th, which I, I know everyone thought was a really great show that that was the one night at the garden that included New York City Serenade. It also included an appearance by Susie Tyrell on Ghost of Tom Joad. I think that was actually the first appearance she ever made with the band.
1: I think you're right. I think you're right. And then, of course, two years later, she's a full time member and has been
0: ever since. Oh, and saying the city was played that night, I was very bummed that I missed that before I got there.
1: <laughs> well, and that was a great candy's room as well. I remember oh, that was right. just, just I blistering. <laughs>
0: that, that was a rough one to miss, yeah. Uh,
1: well, you were, here, you were here two nights later, so I wouldn't, uh, Or yeah, two nights later, so I'm not going to, I don't, think you can beat yourself up too much yeah. about missing well that.
0: and two nights later we saw one hell of a show i've always thought that the june 22nd show was also one of the top shows that i saw on a reunion tour it we we were in the building he opened with another song we couldn't identify which turned out to be another new song written with and another thin line uh, he did something in the night that night again. And you expect this from a garden crowd. Now, by the time that show took place, I remember distinctly there was a very, very small scattering of booze when American Skin started. But by then, the reaction had really turned and the crowd, I think, from what you guys told me, the the feel that night was different than it had been earlier in the stand when the tension was still going on. Yeah.
1: Even though I said it was always like a nervous anticipation for when that song came, he was getting more and more of a supportive reception to the song from from at least people who actually understood it.
0: Yeah, this and, I, and it was the first time, of course, that I saw it, I thought it was brilliant, and just the intensity that he was putting into these shows with the way that American Skin was followed by Promised Land. Then you got the five-pack. And on this night, there was actually a really nice surprise. He followed 10th Avenue with Sherry Darling. And then we got like another little bonus track. And it was the E Street premiere of Secret Garden. And I thought that was just really nice to see. And I think after that, it wasn't played again for what? Like 18, 16 years? Yeah, something like 13 that. When years, it was... I think it was played at Leeds in 2013.
1: Yes, you are, yeah. you are correct. So that was definitely... Totally out of left field, and it was great to hear. It was one of the songs that we thought he he would have been playing every night. It was kind of a kind of kind of a pseudo pseudo hit back in '95 and '97 with that Jerry Maguire film, but you know, it was twas it never to be until the, until June 22nd.
0: Yeah. And that night also in the encores, <laughs> this is one of my f- favorite E Street Band screw up moments. They were playing Ramrod and Bruce was going to go back. He It was a very long version of Ramrod and he was going to go back into the song. And he he counted. And then half the band went into Born to Run and half the band stayed with Ramrod. It was hysterical.
1: That was pretty good. That was pretty good. And I thought you were, you were going to mention Incident.
0: Well, we hadn't gotten to that yet. That was a great, (laughs) great, great version of Incident. Really phenomenal.
1: Yeah, they really nailed it that night. And it was kind of disappointing that both, that neither Incident nor Serenade appeared again throughout the stand. I mean, there were still like, what, five more shows? Five or six more shows.
0: Oh, yeah. That was a surprise. But I think he had other plans for what he was going to pull out from the old days for the rest of the shows. And we know where that was headed.
1: (laughs) That is true. Well, in terms of pulling out rarities, it's interesting to note that in addition to the post Tenth Avenue slot, we now have the pre Thunder Road slot that kind of turned into a into a wild card slot.
0: Yes, and and that was he was featuring that was where Incident was played, and the following night on the twenty third he would play Sandy there. So he was featuring some of the old Nuggets that he knew the crowd wanted to hear. And uh, the next night, that was also, I mean, every one of these shows, this was just such a pleasure because every night we went to the building and and these shows were just really titanic. The next night, which really nobody ever talks about anymore, the 623 show, the performance was incredible. And the set list uh, you know, does this bus stop, which I had never seen before with the band. He also did Human Touch, he did Dead Man Walk In, followed by Meeting into Jungle Land. Sandy and the Encores as I just mentioned. It really these shows were just fantastic.
1: Yeah, it's really it's really amazing to believe that that the high level they were playing so that in the conversation of, oh, which what shows did you like the best, it's so hard to narrow down. You can really literally pick like eight of the ten yeah. to be a top-notch show.
0: These shows and I will say this, I don't know what they have from the garden stand. We know they have well, they've released 7 1, of course, but we also know they have 627 and 629 because they were filming those nights and audio has been used in some capacity from those shows. But I will say this if they did have all 10 nights of this, they really should put out all 10 nights <laughs> because uh, this would be a great stand to get out there.
1: Yes, I obviously, I'm, I'm going to agree with you 110% on that one. The more, the better. And With a stand like this, when there really were, what, five to six differences each night, it's kind of hard to make the argument that, oh, well, we, we released seven ones, so we don't need to release any others. And, you know, that's just not the case here.
0: Well, I think also because of the structure of the show throughout this tour was fairly similar, it, it, it may look like some of the shows there's not as many changes as there were but as you note there were at least five or six changes to every show and they were significant changes and it also the way the shows felt were was different so it, it the, like the 22nd and the 23rd had a lot of overlapping songs but the shows felt distinctly different
1: yes they did yes they did each show did as you said each show did have its own i don't want to say personality but certainly something something close to that.
0: Then they played show number seven on the 26th. I know that I enjoyed this show a lot because, first of all, it has some of my favorites in there, Downbound Train, and also there was a great version of Racing in the Street. I also, oh yes, Light of Day did include part of the medley. That really sent the crowd into a frenzy.
1: (laughs) Well, that's always fun when you get it, when you basically get an extra bonus song in there, and that always takes the energy up, and I know I've said that before, but the energy always seems to take go up another notch or two when when he throws something like that, like boom, boom, or the Detroit medley in there.
0: Yeah, I just and I really remember it was it was those days were hot. I think the building was pretty hot, right? I don't remember, but it was I. Like, I just remember these shows just being like you feel like you're on fire. I mean, and I think that's what the band felt like. And I love seeing the shows in New York because you get on the subway, you go to the venue, you know, it's just, look, it's New York. So, and the garden is the garden, but these shows were really a wonderful couple of weeks. And then if people ask me, which they have, you know, what was my favorite show from the garden? I always say June 27th. Not even 7-1, huh? No, it was definitely not seven one. Okay. I I actually seven one for me may have been third because I also really thought the June twenty second show was great. I mean seven one was a great great show. It's just a testament to how well they were playing <laughs> at this point. But six twenty seven was for me the show. Again, it the the performance was just on the highest level possible that night. To me, that was the closest at the Garden to the experience we had night two in Hartford
1: okay well i do remember i mean i love that show too and i remember it was a very hot version of adam trapped was certainly i certainly loved the performance of it really i remember get really getting into that one and and then, of course, you had the the big the big twofer from tracks to after 10th Avenue. Loose ends and tobacco in your arms.
0: Yeah, I finally saw loose ends. <laughs> I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if you remember this. I believe when loose ends started, I got so excited I knocked the soda over and caused like a complete tidal wave <laughs> around the seats we were in. No,
1: I don't remember. I was sitting with Claudine and uh, her cousins were. Either right in front of us or right behind us. So oh, I thought I, would, I was
0: right near you that night. I forget who I was uh, with. Yeah, I, but, but I that, don't remember that. So. <laughs> quite a run of rarities. Loose ends, back in your arms, Mary Queen of Arkansas. And, and they were on fire. Now you mentioned the the Adam Raised the Cane. And it's funny because Adam Raised the Cane is not one of my favorite songs, particularly, but it seems to pop up in these shows that I find are amazing. And it was it was a just a colossal version of Adam raised the cane that night. It really was. Since it's a guitar
1: dri- driven song, if Bruce is on, it's it is on, and obviously he was on for almost the entire month of June here. So I can see I can see why that would be a like a hallmark of, of some of your uh, some of your better shows.
0: And and the wild card in the encores, is uh, by the light. It's a wild card in the middle of the encores. I know it had been played a handful of times earlier, but still, that was that was tremendous. I mean, that was really a great, great show. As you know, I hold out tremendous hope, because we know they have it, that the June twenty seventh 2000 show is going to be released as part of the Archive series.
1: I hope so, and but I would really love it if they would uh, incorporate your idea of just releasing the entire stand and just get all of these shows out so, so we don't have to worry about that anymore. <laughs>
0: One of the other things we haven't mentioned yet about the stand, he'd gone back to the original structure on the tour of ending with Land of Hope and Dreams, which was, I think, again, part of the statement to the American skin controversy.
1: Oh, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. I was just thinking about this the other day that at least the second night in most two night cities and in a lot of one night stands, he's playing Ramrod after, after Hope and Dreams just because people don't want to go home. Yeah. And at this one, it's, you would you would think at the garden that he would want to end everything on in every show on a on a party note. But no, he he ended it on his on his statement song. This is Land of Open Dreams.
0: Even though he does sometimes at the end of a tour go back to his original conception. Clearly, here it was related to the controversy. And, and I think he was sending the, the shows, many of these shows at the garden opened with Code of Silence and ended with Land of Hope and Dreams. That was not an accident.
1: No, no, it wasn't. He, he had a message and he was going to deliver it every single night and he did and God bless him.
0: Now, the second to last night was (laughs) June 29th and that was a very solid show to me. I remember, and I think we all felt the same way about that. It was a good show. It was, it was not a great show compared to a couple of the shows that had come before. I, I just want to say this right now, since we know they have the twenty seventh and the twenty ninth. Please, if if there's only going to be one more show from the garden, make it the twenty seventh, not the twenty ninth. That's just my personal appeal.
1: <laughs> we had been looking at a lot of uh, a lot of previous multi night stands, and it seemed like. At least in the later era, that the second to last night seemed to be better than the last night. It wasn't true in at New Jersey '84, but it was certainly true in LA '85. And then certainly going back to the the Jersey stand just a, less than a year earlier, the, the second to last night was better than the last night
0: by far. And
1: by far. And so now I think we had some some expectations going into it that maybe we should we shouldn't have had
0: it was expectations built on the series of shows that came right before it. And I understand that's not fair. And and you did have the, the factor that you just mentioned in regards to some of the earlier stands, it was a perfectly fine show. I just, and it really the most notable thing I think that about that night was the version of the promise. And of course that's repeated on seven one anyway. So,
1: well, I think it was someone had a, someone actually had a sign for it and, uh, and, and Bruce played it. And I think that kind of, inspired him to keep it f- for the next night
0: now there was also i will say there was a nice version of this hard land which was ultimately released later on as a b-side well or as, or as a bonus track i should say on a cd single from live in new york city
1: yes along with what was the other one? Oh my god my hometown it be... wasn't it? my hometown
0: <laughs> i am no longer rain man how did this happen to me how sorry it's been 20 years
1: yeah my hometown is not exactly a, a headlining song for me but You know, considering that it was they were included with the bonus release as a bonus with the release of Live in New York City DVD, which was in November of 2001, those two songs again had a thematic tie in to
0: to New York. And with that, we arrived on the final night of the reunion tour, July 1st, 2000. As everyone knows, it's been released as an archive. This was a very big night. People did not know what to expect. Was the band going to go on after this? What was Bruce going to say? And he really delivered a big show that night. It started very, very late. I remember we were standing in that building for so long before he took the stage. And then he opened with Code of Silence. And that was followed by My Love taking it back to the start of the tour.
1: Yeah, it really, there really weren't a lot of surprises in this show overall. But certainly taking it back to including, uh, to include My Love When I Let You Down is, not really the opening song, but second song in in the show, you know, brought it back around and certainly prove it to hearts. Stevie once more, it worked really well. And they came out with the appropriate energy.
0: Yeah, totally. And, and they knew it was a big night themselves. Now you say there weren't a lot of surprises. I do think that's true. But the Blood Brothers was definitely somewhat of a surprise, though nowhere near as big a surprise as Lost in the Flood. What was surprising about Blood Brothers was what he did with it. But as far as surprises go, even with the fact that everything that had come out previously that had been unplayed from the 70s, did you in your wildest dreams think that Lost in the Flood would ever be played?
1: I did not. I thought that was one of the songs that was going to be lost to the 70s forever. And, and but they came out they played an excellent version of
0: it. Oh, it was I remember when the song started and I realized what it was. I it was just so spine tingling and the performance of the song was was perfect for a first time that they were playing it and Bruce's solo at the end was was an incredible moment. I mean it really was. That was that that really couldn't be replicated. I don't know even though Lost in the Flood's now been played many more times and they do a great job and Bruce does Ever increasing wilder solos on it, but that first performance at the garden, it was so compact and so tight. I don't know if they've ever topped it. The only
1: version, the only performance I saw that's been, that possibly would have been near it was The Last Night in Buffalo in 2009.
0: Oh, and that it does come through on the archive.
1: Right. That was an excellent. I, I said that at the time, I thought that was the best version of, of Flood since 7 1, and you know, I still feel that way. So and I that, still feel that the 7-1 Lost in the Flood is the best one he's done in the in these 20 years.
0: Yeah, it was it was truly a, a tremendous performance and and the crowd reaction to Lost in the Flood, it was a very knowledgeable crowd. People had literally flown in from all around the world <laughs> to be there for that closing night of the reunion tour. It was actually the hardest ticket I think I've ever seen for a show in New York, except for maybe two others, one being the Dylan 30th anniversary. Uh, Thing that they did, and the U2 Zoo TV single show they did at the garden, those would be the three that really stand out to me. And it was the crowd was just so revved up and so into the show. And we actually skipped over this, but at the end of Atlantic City, there was a call and response with the crowd that was so loud. And unfortunately, this is one of the things it wasn't really captured perfectly on the archive release but the crowd was so loud on the meet me tonight in Atlantic city part. It was hair raising. Yes, it was. And
1: I actually, I worked on an IEM audience, a mix of the show, uh, back in 2007. And yeah, that was something I really tried to capture because as you said, it was really a turning point in the show. It was a solid show, I guess, up to that point, certainly so- solid, certainly strong. But once it reached that call and response with the audience on, on on that lyric, that's when it went to another level.
0: and and he extended it. I mean, it was just yeah. reverberating through the building. it that was very memorable because you don't really, you know, and again, going back to the one plus one equals three thing, it's so rare that you're in a building where everyone is together like that. And it just it everyone seems to be like on edge. and it really it was it was amazing it
1: was it it really was and it was definitely a highlight of the, of the whole stand really
0: yeah and that one of the most memorable things that's why i say it's too bad that Schiller didn't really bring that out on the archive release i think he's done an amazing job that was one of the things i wish had been reflected better yes yeah, so he's he's he has a
1: heck of a batting average on the on mixing those archive shows and if he gets a a few misses here and there. And just, I mean, we're just talking like little moments here. We're not even talking complete shows. You know, he's, it's definitely okay.
0: Well, as I speculated, you know, I don't even know. He probably wasn't at that show. If he didn't know about it, you wouldn't necessarily know to mix that in.
1: That's true.
0: Now, the other big crowd moment of this night was Bruce was taking time to thank everyone and his crew and everything prior to Land of Hope and Dreams, and I'll, I'll never forget, and we talked about this on the E Street Community Conference when we did it on E Street Radio, it, to me, sounded like a, a rumbling truck coming up from behind. <laughs> Suddenly, out of nowhere, there was, and, and I heard it's sort of building, there was an E Street band chant that started in the building, and it just took over the entire building and bruce stopped talking except to say get some fucking lights on him is that what he said damn lights on him oh get some damn lights on him yeah it was that was and it was a tremendous acknowledgement of the band i if i think everyone felt really good about it the again that was a crowd that really had a lot of shows under their belt i think had flown in from faraway places in many cases and people wanted to show their appreciation for the band and for bruce but also to reflect that the band being back together was something very special for them and that moment really brought it out right bruce had been talking about the rebirth and rededication of
1: the band and i'm not sure as, as you said earlier i'm not sure how much planning he had to do with them over after this tour was over but It certainly showed that it was a, that tour was appreciative, appreciated, and people responded with a very emotional way to, to the reunion.
0: Yes. That was a very, very emotional night for some people more than others.
1: Yeah. We'll get to that later. But (laughs) one thing uh, I want to bring out is the American skin promised land combo was not the only political statement he made in music anyway the Lost in the Flood, Born in the USA combo, you know, that's that's pretty big for, for Bruce's anti-war statement. Yes. I mean, it's pretty, I mean, you would say, you would think it's obvious, but I'm not really sure a lot of people picked up on that.
0: I don't know that they did. You know, it's good that you bring it out. The other thing about that show, and I, the fact that he played further on up the road in the Encore wildcard slot, as we're calling it, that was a nice tip to, you know, hopefully we will all see each other again.
1: Yes, yes, it was, and... Certainly gave me hope that it was going to be released on, you know,
0: whatever live
1: document that we knew they were working on from the tour or from these shows.
0: So, okay, so Land of Hope and Dreams ends. He says he's got one more song. He asked for quiet. Right. And as I said, I don't know that it was a tremendous surprise, a particular song that was being played. But he started and it was weird because I had even said this before the show. I was like, can he play Blood Brothers? There's doubt. Like, why did I make this call? And it doesn't seem appropriate for the evening, but he solved that problem.
1: Yes, he did. I mean, the song started somewhat low with that, uh, with the with the with Danny's organ chord, building up, and before people finally realized what song it was. And then, yeah, when he played the uh, the revamped or the totally rewritten final verse, I mean, there was no doubt that how he felt how he felt about the band at that point.
0: You talk about Bruce's brilliance. Now, I don't know why when he originally wrote the song, maybe he was feeling some ambivalence because that's clearly reflected in the song. And I think it would have been weird to do standing on that stage that night. But, you know, in some of my favorite lines here, and the miles we have come and the battles won and lost are just so many roads traveled, so many rivers crossed. And I ask God for the strength and faith in one another because it's a good night for a ride. Cross this river to the other side, my blood brothers. I mean, even now you feel emotional saying those words.
1: <laughs> yes, you do. And uh, I had already been thinking about you know, the fact how many miles we have come. You know, on land of when he was talking about land of open dreams or singing land of open dreams, and then he he did it. He got here to this point in blood brothers, and he was very explicit about it. And yeah, there may have been a little waterworks on my on my part, or maybe not just a little, but maybe maybe I'm maybe I was sobbing. You'll never know.
0: Well, I know, and I won't talk,
1: Flynn. (laughs) Well, if you didn't cry during that, all I can say is I looked
0: over and I was like, oh my God, what is going on with Flynn? Well, if you weren't crying, you are a freaking robot. I know. I mean, I was emotional, but you were like...
1: (laughs) I wasn't the only one. That's for sure
0: it That's was sure. uh it was quite a moment again i know the reunion tour is not the river tour it's not the darkness tour but that final moment of blood brothers for what it stands and what it means to the band from that night is truly one of the greatest moments that he's ever had on stage i don't you know you you wonder how did he <laughs> come up with these new lyrics was he sitting around how when did he write them was it long before did he know he was going to do that did he just come up with it that day Obviously, unless we get a chance to talk to him, we're never going to know the answer to these questions. But it was just spectacular.
1: Right. And one thing that we haven't mentioned is the the visual of all most of the band coming to the front of the stage and holding holding hands. Yeah, that has
0: particular power, I think, now that Danny and Clarence are gone. I remember him calling Clarence over and taking Clarence by the hands. And speaking of people who were crying, Clarence was crying.
1: Okay. I'm not surprised by that. He's very emotional. We'll talk about more about that on the when we discuss the rising tour. But, yeah, I don't think uh, like I said, if you weren't if you weren't at least emotional during that part of the show, part of that part of the song, you're a robot. <laughs>
0: well, and and what was interesting about it was people filing out of that building that night after that took place. They really did wonder whether we were going to see them again. Now, of course, we now know we've we saw them two years later, and we saw them many, many times after <laughs> that. But that was kind of a complete unknown on July 1st, 2000. Well, really, it was July 2nd by the time we walked out of the building.
1: Yes, it was. Um, but I guess if you if we believed Bruce about the rebirth and rededication, you had, you had to figure something was coming. Yeah. It's just that it just took, took, took a long, took a bit more to happen than we would have
0: thought or would have liked for that matter. What I remember from thinking, I really did think we'd probably see them again. Of course, nobody knew for sure. But it was, again, just such a perfect ending to a tour. I, I don't know that any tour has ever ended this perfectly by any artist. Now, I know he repeated it again <laughs> three years later, which was great, but not the same level of perfection. But for the moment and in the context of what it was, it was it was it was just it was a wonderful night and a wonderful wrap up to the tour. And everyone filed out of that building. And fortunately, we've had 20 years more of Bruce. True.
1: True sure, yeah that was that was quite a night I look, I look back at it with a lot of fondness, a lot of emotion, and uh you know I'm just glad that with the with the archive release of the seven, of the Seven one show that been able to to recreate it, or at least think back, listen to it in perfect quality and really take my, let myself go back a few years.
0: Yeah, it's a good listen. Now, a document did result from this stand, which was well before we got the archive. I don't want to I don't think we should spend too much time on it. Now, I know on when we did the conference on E Street Radio, the entire panel spent a lot of time beating up on the live in New York City release, deservedly so. I, I think the thing is, fortunately, it's been replaced. We've got the whole show, we've got the archive series. So, you know, look, it is what it is. It was not the it was not a great product at the time
1: no it was not even when they added the i mean the cd came out in april of 2001 and the um the the video came out that november you know which did rectify a little bit more because they included a lot more songs but still just the fact that they never included a video of that performance of blood brothers was just a that was a nice big swing and a miss by. by yeah,
0: there. well, and and as I always joke, I mean, they added in "Born to Run" on the first CD as an afterthought with a gap between the other songs. Like it's the Bruce Springsteen East Street Band reunion tour. I mean, you're gonna were they seriously thinking about releasing it without "Born to Run"? Is that possible?
1: Yes, yeah, so it, it's just mind boggling to think about what they had originally in, intended to release and. It's like, how could you leave X, I mean, all these songs off? It was just bizarre.
0: Yeah, you know, look, I think it just shows the different state of mind that you have at that time versus now. Of course, this sort of release would never be put out by them now. And fortunately, we do have the archive series, but it just, if you were going to do it today, if it wasn't going to be a complete show, you'd have to do it much more complete, documenting the stand. They really just, I, I hate to say it, they butchered it, so...
1: They really did. They did. But uh, uh, they got a a second chance on it, and they they nailed it. uh,
0: Yeah, and as we know, they're nailing the Archive series pretty well. Uh, Yes, every month. (laughs) Yep, every month we love it. Now, I think that pretty much brings our reunion tour discussion to a close. Bruce did do two more shows in December of 2000. Those were Christmas shows, even though the entire band was there. We'll leave that. I think we'll probably do an entire show dedicated to the asbury christmas shows and it seems fitting that we'll maybe do that in december
1: sounds good to me unless we have something else to discuss in december but i'm not holding my breath just yet
0: right well you're i believe you're hoping that we're going to have tracks too which we will probably discuss over a series of episodes
1: <laughs> if it happens always yes. a big if in fingers Bruce, crossed Bruce's world and
0: exactly. all the listeners cross your fingers too
1: yes let's get some mass uh, mass good luck here
0: but should we finish with our usual little bit of business of course none but the brave is a presentation of bull market entertainment please subscribe on your platform of choice whether it's apple podcast or one of the others and you can find us on the web at nonebutthebravepodcast.com and on twitter we're at nbtb podcast so Fal schwartz i'm phil McLean.
1: saying thanks again for listening and we'll see you further on up the room
0: thank you so much we'll be seeing you bowie podcast.